Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast, the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix version. It's the first time I've ever said that. Uh, my name is Neil Morrison, and as ever, I'm going to take you through the latest uh, offering that MotoGP has served up another scintillating race with uh, plenty of storylines. 2020 just keeps getting weirder and weirder, and in a season and a year that keeps getting weirder and weirder, I'm joined by a man who through his life has got weirder and weirder. Mr. David Emmett of motomatters.com, how are you, sir? I am not so bad, Mr. Neil Morrison, not so bad. I have done some of that cycling of which I am so fond in the last couple of days, so things could be considerably worse. How are you surviving? We're at number two of nine in 11 weeks. Yeah, actually, do you know what? Um, we were talking about this just before this. Uh, the, I, I think what made it worse was the test, having the test on Tuesday. That sort of like uh, killed it. There is so much uh, racing going on um, that the uh, just like having a full day of testing uh, to uh, talk about as well, that, uh, that was just a little bit too much. And I was thinking also about this weekend. This weekend we had... Uh, MotoGP at Misano for the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix. We had World Superbikes in Barcelona. We had BSB at Alton Park, I think. Um, we had the Le Mans 24 hour car race. And we had, uh, the, uh, last three stages of Tour de France. Um, and I'm fairly sure I've missed some things. Um, we had the uh, start of the Dutch uh, football season again, uh, which people were told off for cheering um, because that's bad for the coronavirus. Um, but yeah, it's just been the, this just so much sport. Yeah, so much sport in such a, a little amount of time. I mean, I uh, kind of felt at times that my head was going to explode. We had the usual three Grand Prix races plus cramming two Model E races and an e poll to that. And, uh, yeah, suddenly the the day gets quite a bit longer and uh, the alarm clock is set, you know, half an hour, 30 minutes, 40 minutes earlier on a Sunday. But uh, at least it's worked, David. It is. It is work. <laughs> it is work indeed. I'm surprised you've still got a voice after all that, uh, after all that Moto E chat. Yeah, sure, it was nothing. Uh, well, let's get stuck into Emilia Romagna then, Mr. Emmett, because it was uh, it was another interesting race. It was a sixth different race winner in MotoGP in seven races. I think that's the first time that we've had six in the first seven races of any season, any time. Uh, we have a championship in which four riders are covered by four points. Um, this just keeps throwing up storylines and and different twists. I mean, let's start with guy that finished the first place, Maverick Vinales, because about a week ago, we were writing him off, we were criticizing him with some justification, I think. Um, but he did one of those Maverick Vinales type things where just when you think the cause is lost and everything's going to implode within his garage, he manages to rescue it a little bit and um, and pull a, a pretty great performance out of that. Yeah, um, it was an absolutely fantastic ride by Maverick Vinales. I mean, you know, everything went right for him. He got a good start. He was um, uh, straight to the lead for, you know, like the first six laps um, until Pecco Bagnaia got past him. Uh, but he didn't panic when Bagnaia got past him. He just, you know, kept grinding out the laps. And you see, um, if you look at the lap chart, you can sort of like see see what happened that um uh he was just starting to reel Banyaya in and when when Banyaya crashed because you know, the gap went down from lap 17 i think for uh, from 1.5 to 1.3 to 1.2 to 1.1 
Uh, and then, you know, Banyar crashes out and Vinales just holds it together and rides just a brilliant race to get to, uh, to get to the end. So, um, made the right choice, tire choice this time, went with the medium like he uh, said he should have. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, what, what can you say? Just, just a really, it was a perfect race, uh, or, you know, it was as perfect as, as, as Maverick is, is capable of, of doing. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was as perfect as it needed to be in some respects. Um, and, you know, we can say that his uh, fortunes contrasted greatly from one weekend to the next, but it, it, that wasn't even the case. They contrasted from Friday to basically Saturday, and then from Saturday it continued on being quite decent because on Friday uh, it was it was pretty grave. It was bad. He was complaining about having no rear grip. Uh, he had had a good test on Tuesday, surprise, surprise. And then he came on Friday and nothing was working. He started getting pretty aggro. A uh, colleague of mine, Steve Day, was interviewing him for Dorna on Friday afternoon. And then Maverick stayed behind after the interview just to basically vent. And he vented about everything. Yamaha, his team, Michelin, the bike, saying all these different things were happening. And, and Steve came away from that interaction thinking his head's gone and he is he's gone I mean we're just going to see him drop but I mean what, what what happened what was the change on Saturday that led to him getting pole position and then having such a good race well I mean the, the, they worked a little bit on the balance of the bike you know they said they'd been looking uh, trying to focus on getting confidence in the front instead of worrying about grip from the rear um, uh, that made a difference he also did some runs with a full tank uh, in, in in race configuration which f- frankly I mean, I don't really understand why he wasn't doing runs with with a full tank in race configuration previously. Um, it's the sort yeah, of thing which a, you need. There was an interesting question in the press conference afterwards. Matt Oxley said, Maverick, you said that you've changed your working t- methods this weekend to work with a, a full tanker for the race, but are you not always supposed to do that? And <laughs> he gave a quite frankly perplexing answer in which he said, oh, no, you normally, you know, you normally don't have a full tank. You just... Have a full tank of warm up, and that's it. Yeah, exactly. Which is, it's it's a bit late to discover that you've uh, you've uh, you've completely messed up your uh, uh, your race setup for the for you know the the first five laps of the race, uh, where you could quite easily lose six seconds and um, end up finishing sixth, uh, like uh, he did a week ago, basically. So it it is just um, mystifying. It is mystifying, yeah. So much of Maverick's career has been mystifying. I wrote a little bit about this earlier, though, and I was saying how the last three and a half years were basically, you know, if you wanted a snapshot of that, you just look at Mizano one and two because it had it had everything. It had it had the, the, the splendid free practice pace and qualifying pace in Mizano one, and then the terrible start and the bad first couple of laps and the decent end of first race at Mizano and then he rectified that by being one of the quickest guys at the test and then there was the near meltdown but he managed to recover um, and how much of this do you think Dave is just down to mentality basically Maverick managing to find some tranquility within was that a factor? May Maybe but I mean I was um, I did a podcast with uh, for Dutch Eurosport with Peter Bomb earlier today and he said and he was saying Oh you tart <laughs> No, I know I'm a I'm a podcast slatten. That's what I am. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, he made a really interesting point. He said 
um, everything went right for, for Maverick. You can't really judge it because everything went right. He went from, um, he basically went from, you know, he got a good start. He was qualified on the front row. So he's in the, he's starting from the right place. Um, he got a good start. Um, didn't get caught up. Didn't have to fight his way through the field. Didn't get stuck behind other riders. Um, sure. He got passed by, uh, by Benya. And he rode, I mean, he rode brilliantly. He managed that. He managed the race brilliantly. Um, and you know, even if, even if Peko hadn't fallen off, you have to say there was a very good chance that he would have, uh, uh, uh that, Maverick would have caught him and then it gets, you know, then it gets interesting. Maybe it would have been difficult to actually get past just because the Ducati is so much faster. But, um, you know, it, everything went to plan. We spoke about this last week where, you know, Maverick needs to have, need, Maverick needs everything to go to plan. He has the, an idea of how the, how the race is going to go. The race went exactly as he thought it was going to go. And so, uh, and so he had no problem. So it's, it's just, that's what makes it all so inscrutable. You have, you, you literally have no idea. And I think for me, the weirdest thing this weekend was, I mean, um, in the qualifying press conference, he basically threw one of his data engineers under the bus. I mean, like literally sort of, you know, the tire guy said the hard would work and, um, and he was wrong. And, uh, it's his, uh, it's his fault. <laughs> yeah. And he was asked for clarification. Oh, are you talking about the Michelin guy? Was it the Michelin guy designated to your garage that gave you bad advice? And he was like, no, 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 no. No, it was the Yamaha guy in my garage who gives me advice on the tires. It was him and it was a terrible decision. It was very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, this is not how you build a team. This is not uh, how you. Yeah, but the, when was the last time we heard a chat, like a MotoGP champion, um, speak about a team member like this? I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, like it, 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 to an, it almost reminded me a little bit of, uh, what was it? Austria 2018, where was it, uh, Tuya? I think is the, uh, is the, is the name of the engineer who was uh, the, the, the former MotoGP project leader who, um, sort of came in and, uh, apologized publicly to us and to his riders for building a bike, which was rubbish. And, um, then, yeah, it, it was, it had that same sort of, it had that same sort of vibe that, you know, Maverick is there sort of like, um, uh, you know, him, him, it's his fault, sack him. It was just really odd. Yeah, you, it's not something you do. You, you do not air your dirty linen in public in such a fashion. And as you said, I mean, this is a guy that spent so much time trying to build up, um, an image that, you know what, I'm actually quite a nice guy compared to two years ago when he, you know, he wasn't an easy guy to get along with, or I don't think he really cared about how he was viewed. But you, you get the impression that he, he puts more thought into that these days. And he's put the effort in building his own little side of the garage up with his, his crew chief, Esteban Garcia, and with Julian Simon. And there's another couple of minders or, or you know, people that look after the kind of uh, the mundane things every, every rider has as one of those guys like a helper and yeah I, and he, since that change at the start of 2019 he was not really doing that he wasn't really speaking out against his team but this was a return to it yeah 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 absolutely i, I think it, it's an interesting contrast when you think of say andrea dovicioso now dovicioso and delinia do not get along they basically don't speak um uh, but you will never hear andrea dovicioso say 
a bad word about uh, Gigi Delinia. He'll make very oblique criticisms. Uh, and I'm fairly sure that he has, uh, you know, spoken off the record to a number of Italian journalists about it, which is how we know about it. Um, but what he doesn't do is go in the press conference and say, you know, Gigi's made a crap bike. It's, uh, it's, it's just, it, it, it's mystifying. It really, it really is. He's so talented. Maverick Vinales is so unbelievably talented. Um, but also deeply, deeply strange. Yes. Yes. That is, uh, that's a fair comment, I would say. And that is the kind of Vinales dichotomy. It's this incredible talent that you can never quite write off. Yet this mentality and the approach can never, never nothing's ever a certainty with him. Let's put it that way. Uh, I don't think. And um, one of the most telling comments they made on Sunday um, was when he was talking about how he feels on the bike and how important it was to get that good start and have those first couple of laps. Um, in fact, he, he basically motioned, he put his finger to his lips whenever he crossed the line. And I think your Dutch Eurosport colleague, Frank Wink, asked him what that, what that gesture meant. And he said, oh, it was, it was basically for myself. Um, it wasn't a shot at you critics that are always dissing me and slagging me off on Sunday. It was actually for me, which I don't believe. But anyway, he said, because I need to calm down, especially when the races don't go as I like, because I get very fired up when that happens. Yeah. I, I, I so yeah, th- th- there's there's the explanation right there. Yeah. Oh, yes. Exactly. I mean, it's it's uh, it's inter- interesting. Um, I think perhaps his problem is that he lacks the, the the introspection because he does. He's just explained exactly what's what's what goes wrong. Um, but to actually uh, understand that, uh, process that information, and then act on it is is, is something different. So yeah. But you can see what he's capable of when he does do it right. Yeah, he does. All right. You do see that. Absolutely. I think another interesting observation um, is uh, how Rossi and how he reacted to the Austrian Grand Prix, where they both, let's face it, nearly died. Um, Vinal has just missed Zarco's bike flying over his head. Rossi was almost killed by Franco Morbidelli's bike going up towards turn three. After the race, you could tell Valentino Rossi was deeply, deeply affected by it. And very emotional. But Vinales wasn't. He was just talking about the race. Oh, you know, when we restarted, I burnt out the clutch and I didn't have this. And it's another bad day for Yamaha. And another situation where I qualify well and I don't feel good in the race. And it was like, mate, you, you just died. And when you when we asked it, or sorry, you, you just almost died. And when we asked him like about that, it was like, oh, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm pretty lucky. But there wasn't that there wasn't that full introspection that Rossi was clearly undergoing. No, exactly, and I think he also said that he, you know, he had actually looked back at the uh, uh, watched it a few times um, uh, just to, to sort of to, to try to understand what happened. But I mean, yeah, Zarco's bike almost clipped his helmet. That's how close it came, and yet he's oblivious. It's. Uh, like I say, he's, uh, um, he, he, he seems, from what we know of him, you never know, you know, riders in that same way. Uh, it seems like a perfectly pleasant and, you know, nice young man. Um, but he has some strange ideas. Um, uh, he's so focused on racing 
that I think, uh, you know, he can't see the wood for the trees. He, he can't, he can't step back and see the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. I would go along with that. Um, I had the feeling before we came to Mizano for the San Marino Grand Prix, the first race at Mizano, that maybe Vinales was being unfairly overlooked for the championship because he was still there even after crap races in the Czech Republic and in Austria. Um, and we know how talented he is and we know how, well, good a package the Yamaha is whenever it can get to the front of a, of a race. You know, that all, all my doubts were realized in the first Mizano race. But I mean, people are talking about Dolvi and, and Joanne Mir and, and Fabio being one of the fastest guys in the championship. But I mean, we have to take Vinella seriously, right? Because he's, he's one point off. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just won a race, um, in, you know, convincing fashion. Uh, and, you know, his pole lap, obviously, again, Pekka Benyar had his lap cancelled. Um, but uh, honestly, Vinales' pace was just superb all weekend. He really is capable of it. But the problem is, is he's so unpredictable. He's, you know, he, he's like almost the anti-Dolphy. You know, he's just no... There's no consistency, and you never know what you're going to get with them. Uh, he is uh, he is Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. Uh, you know, when the when the when the lights go out, you never know what what you're going to get. It's just um, uh, I, I tried to make a rather poor um, uh, analogy with Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde um, uh, in in one of my roundups this weekend, and I think that's. It's the, it's the same with Maverick. You just, you just, you just never know. And if he could, if he could get that together, if he could get that side of his racing together, he would be absolutely formidable. Um, right now, you have to say, can Maverick Vinales win the championship? Absolutely. But, you know, he could also finish third or fourth. I always have to feel them with Maverick that you're only one weekend away from crisis. <laughs> because generally, when things go bad, they, they start to go pretty bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then I'm going to contradict myself by saying, you know, things weren't quite bad at Hareth in both races because he should have been fighting with Fabio, let's face it, in both of them. He didn't, but he still came away with two seconds. So I don't know. It's, um, it's a really tough one to gauge because sometimes this year the bad has been a couple of second places or in last weekend's case, sixth place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, right. yeah, because it, he, he viewed last weekend as a disaster, but sixth in this championship, sixth place is sixth place on a bad weekend is a really, really good result because that's the, that, you know, that's the way it is. But, but of course, the problem for Maverick is that he's got a DNF. Um, uh, you know, he's stacked the bike in, um, uh, in, in Austria too. So it's, this is what's really, really making the difference. Yeah, this is what's making the difference. Something that made the difference uh, in Sunday's race clearly was uh, was the fall suffered by Pekka Bonyaya. A real heartbreaker, a real sad sight to see uh, to see him crashing off into the gravel. I make that the first crash from a MotoGP rider out of the lead since Marquez in Cota last year, I think. Um, and it was, I mean, it didn't really look like it was coming. You, you mentioned that Vinales was putting them under, under pressure, and that was absolutely true. I think there were three laps where uh, Banyai's lead was coming down a tenth of a second per lap, um, and I think it was around the one-second mark when he did crash. Um, but it had been a, a phenomenal weekend before. Uh, as you mentioned there, pole position lap, which was cancelled out correctly, um, 
but I, that was an outstanding, outstanding lap. Would have been the first, uh, yeah, complete all-time lap record it would have been. And yeah, and the first in the 130s, which is, you know, 130s on a motorbike around uh, around Misano is really, really, really quick. Yeah, really quick indeed. And uh, it, was a, it was a textbook race. He, he started well and caught Finellas up and then pulled away and it looked pretty effortless. But what, what was the situation there? He was, he seemed a bit dumbfounded by the whole thing, right? On Sunday. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he said, he said he didn't understand the crash. Um, couldn't see a reason for it. Uh, you know, same speed, same throttle, same brake, same lean angle. Uh, but the bike just went and it did go quickly. It did just, um, fold. Um, he said, well, maybe the track was dirty. Maybe I crashed over a tear off, uh, which I think was just all the rage in the Pramac garage, uh, after what happened to Jack Miller. Um, uh, obviously Jack Miller's bike swallowed a, uh, uh, uh swallowed one of Fabio Quattararo's, uh, tear offs, which he discarded on the grid that got sucked into the air intake and robbed the bike of power. Um, uh, but I think, uh, uh, I think Pecco Bagnaia just sort of like seized on this and decided that, uh, well, that must have happened to me. But the thing is, I mean, like there are always lots of tear offs on the, uh, on the front straight because what riders do is after the warm up lap, when they're getting ready for the start, the last thing they do, or one of the last things they do as they're waiting for the start is to take a tear off off, um, because they want to have a, as clean a visor as possible. So there'll be, might be bits of oil, bits of dirt, um, uh, dead flies or whatever. Um, and where you're going to take a tear off of is on a straight, you know, somewhere where you've got a little bit of time. Where you're not going to take a tear off of is <laughs> in the middle of turn six, one of the more fastest, more, more, you know, one of the more difficult corners, um, in, uh, uh, around Misano. Um, so that seems, that seems odd. It was just, uh, but I think it was, um, I think it was, he was just looking for an excuse. I mean, there must have been something different. And it was just disappointment. I mean, I would be the same. I would be absolutely gutted. Um, because it, you know, it, it, up until that point, he was by some margin, the best rider of the weekend. He was just, uh, he was the fastest in practice. Um, he was, uh, you know, he held his hand up during, uh, during qualifying, you know, that, that lap, he said, yeah, I just got greedy. Uh, he just got greedy, pushed a little bit too far, went, uh, went you know, went outside of track limits. And so had his, his lap uh, taken away, still managed to qualify fifth, second row, not so bad. Um, and you know, he just had, he had the rhythm to control that race and mm, did he get nervous? I think calling it nervous is, is, is perhaps over, uh, over stating it a little, but he couldn't hold it together, um, all the way uh, to the end, you know, maybe just a small mistake. Maybe he just rode over, maybe his line was a little bit different when, uh, and he rode over a little bit of dirt or something like that, or the, the, the bike uh, just reacted differently. And, and that was it. But I mean, it's a shame because Pecco absolutely hundred percent deserved that win, but, um, it wasn't to be. It was not to be, uh, yeah. Home victory. First victory for Pecco in MotoGP. We'll, uh, sadly have to wait just a little bit longer. Now, David, uh, Maybe talked about this before we broached this subject before, but whenever Pecco crashed, he was 15 seconds ahead of the next Ducati. He was 15 seconds ahead of Andrea De Vizioso, the championship leader. And it's now got to the stage where we've had three races 
in Hareth, the two Mizano races, where he has comprehensively outperformed the other Ducati riders. What is he doing differently? What is Bagnaia's secret to go to to be this fast with the Ducati? Because had he not broken his leg, he would probably be the favourite for the championship, I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean that's that that is a fair that's a fair joke. I mean, if you think about uh, the 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 race in Jerez where the, you know basically his engine packed up um, and that took him out, he was you know on his way forward and making progress. That I think he was in second when his engine went. Um, that's yeah, it is clear that he is um, he's he's doing something special, and it seems to be. The whole thing is is about breaking with this rear Michelin tire. Um, the way that you have to break is different. Um, it's totally different to the way that uh, Dovizioso and Petrucci have been doing it in previous years. Uh, they would, uh, you know, use the front to to to, to break and then uh, use the rear the uh, well the rear which when it had less grip to actually slide the bike into into the corner help it turn and slow it on corner entry um you can't do that with this michelin tire because it's got too much grip and so it's overpowering the the engine braking um it's uh, too unpredictable it won't work uh gave quite a very quite quite a complete explanation of what it needed of the change needed um uh, but then he was also I want to, enough to say you know it's totally it, it goes totally against my my natural style it goes against everything i do and it's really difficult to change that in just a few races um banyaya um, had a fairly miserable time last year he you know couldn't get on with last year's rear tire perhaps learned in thailand how to brake a motor gp bike properly um he's just you know he's much faster on corner entry um, it is possible that one of his advantages is that he's coming coming from Moto2, where you have very, very different tyres, where the, uh, the the Dunlops are very different. Um, uh, someone described them to me as, you know, basically, you know, two wooden tyres, but the rear is, um, is a little bit more wooden than the front. Um, they're fine because you can put 60 or 70 laps on those tyres uh, uh, without them actually, without using them all up. Uh, so you know they're perfectly functional. It's just they're they're not they're, they're not the same as the MotoGP tires. So maybe uh, the riding style from Moto Two can be an advantage with the with this specific uh, setup because the balance of the bike, where um, you know th- there's more grip on the rear than there is uh, 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 the, than there is on the front, um, that might be the way that it's working in in Moto Two as well. So. Yeah, it's it, it it or in MotoGP as well. So it's it's uh, it, it, it's an interesting. It seems to be a combination of factors. Also, again, the fact is, Pekka Banyaya, This is his second year, uh, whereas Dovi's been on the bike since two thousand and thirteen. And you, the, those ingrained uh, patterns, those ingrained learned behaviours of how you how to ride a do uh, how to how to ride a Ducati, Pekko doesn't have. Um, and I would be shocked if. He isn't announced as the second uh, factory Ducati rider in uh, in 2020 or for 2021 rather. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's surely only a matter of time. Um, yes. So interesting stuff, and uh, you have to say that Banyaya, although his weekend ended in massive amounts of disappointment, that uh, that first win is only only a matter of time. Uh, you would you would imagine this season. Um, 
Barcelona, maybe. Possibly, yeah, with that long front I, I, I mean, for, for me, it's going to be between Banyaya and Juan Mir because they seem to be the two riders who are... Uh, they're so close, you can re- you can feel it. And at some point, they're going to make a breakthrough, and then it gets then it, then things get interesting. Well, you just done my segue for me, David, because I was uh, going to introduce uh, the very interesting, talented, uh, audacious Spaniard that rides for Suzuki uh, next up. Because uh, well, Mir is riding the crest of a wave at the moment. He's had four races now, which have just been absolutely stellar. Um, in that time, he's scored a he scored a second, a fourth. A third and another second and basically the fourth place if you remember in the Styrian Grand Prix that should have been a win had the red flag not come out that would have been absolutely a win for Joanne Mir in this MotoGP class he's riding really really well he's riding brilliantly in fact and I wouldn't even say you would call him a dark horse for the title anymore because anyone that I've spoken to any colleague be it a commentator or a journalist or a casual fan I was a uh, going for my COVID test uh, this morning uh, up at uh, Montmelo at the circuit. The glamour. This weekend. The glamour, yes. And uh, my taxi driver uh, was, was chatting my ear off about MotoGP. And yeah, even he was saying, Joanne May is going to win the title. So yeah, everyone is saying it now. Is he? Is he the favourite from here? Four points back. Yeah, four points back. But um, as you say, uh, if you look at the full last four races, because I, uh, I, I, I did the uh, I, I did the maths on this. Um, in the last four races, Juan Mir has scored sixty nine points, which is uh, sixteen points more than Andrea Dovizioso, who's the second most score, uh, uh, has the second most points, and uh, thirty six points more than Franco Morbidelli. Oh, no, 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 sorry, wait a minute, I've got it all sorted wrong. No, so the, the, the next one is 44 points with Jack Miller. So he's just vastly outscoring people. And even if you, if you look at the last five races, um, one of which Juan Mir had a, uh, had a DNF, he's still got 69 points, which is 11 points more than Andrea Dovizioso, 16 points more than Franco Morbidelli, uh, what is it? 18 points more than, uh, than Jack Miller. He, I mean, if there is one consistent rider, Right now, it's Juan Mir. The trouble is, um, you know, he has to he has to sustain this. But if you look at the tracks coming up, uh, Barcelona, uh, a track with a little bit less grip, because the biggest problem for the for, for the Suzuki is qualifying. Um, their qualifying is absolutely shocking. The fact that Juan Mir starts from eleventh and uh, Alex Rins didn't even get into Q two is uh, is absolutely horrendous especially when you see the pace of the suzukis towards the end of the, uh, towards the end of the race yeah yeah although mir's qualifying wasn't that bad in austria and he said that uh, one of the crucial things there was the fact that it wasn't hot whenever there are cooler temperatures they actually are able to get uh, quite a decent feel with the uh, with the new softer rear tire which is not really working for them in the in the hotter temperatures because we saw them struggle terribly in qualifying in Mizano and, and at Jerez. and well i mean Sitting here in Barcelona now, Dave, it is quite muggy, but it definitely is quite a bit cooler than it was at Misano. Um, and it's been stormy and, and thundery here all week. And you wonder if there is kind of, uh, you know, temperatures of, say, ambient temperatures of 20 degrees that could play into its hands possibly for, for qualifying. But, um, I mean, what well, is it, is it a thing where we're looking at the rider? Is there something fundamentally wrong with the bike in this respect when it comes to qualifying? 
I know. I think it is a. I mean, every single motorcycle is a is a compromise. So when you're designing a motorcycle, because it's a very it's uh, motorcycle dynamics, because the motorcycle moves in three dimensions, um, they become very. It, it becomes very very complex. So you always are looking at a compromise. Uh, it means you're always having to sacrifice one area to gain to make gains in another area. It's a bit like Danilo Petrucci is always talking about the short blanket, where you can either uh, choose to um, uh, sort of like have warm shoulders or warm feet, but not both. Um, and the compromise which Suzuki seems to have made is um, it's very good in tire con- uh, conservation. The Suzuki is always the last, uh, the, the fastest at the end of the race, and we saw it again this weekend, um, where you know Juan Mir came back. I think he was maybe four and a half seconds back, um, and he gained a couple of seconds in about in about sort of five, six, maybe six, seven, eight laps on Fabio Quartararo and Paulus Bargaro. Um, just because he's still got the tire left, but because the bike is so good at conserving tire, it can't push extract that little bit extra to gain the extra like two or three tenths uh, on a qualifying lap. And everything is so close now that two or three tenths can be you know six, seven, eight, nine, ten places all of a sudden. Uh, when you've got the the top fifteen or eighteen or nineteen covered by one second, three tenths really, really is a big, big deal. Yeah, yeah. I think you also have to look at uh, at Mir. His qualifying record. He's only ever had two pole positions in his career. Even in that dominant Moto Three campaign in which he won two thousand and seventeen, he won ten races that year. He only had one pole position. So I think you can say also that. Um, Historically, it's not been something that uh, that he has excelled in. If you compare him to the likes of of Cordero or Vinales or, or Marquez, guys that are pole hounds or you know can just can do that over one lap. But um, but no, I definitely agree with you, David. And I remember having a, a, a conversation with with his crew chief Frankie Carcetti back in Qatar in February when we were there for the MotoGP test. And uh, yeah, Carcetti was saying then that. It's it's something fundamental with the bike. It's still an issue, um, but when the Suzuki is as good as it is in racing conditions, I mean, yeah, if he can qualify in the front two rows, then he's going to be a very a very dangerous uh, proposition indeed. I have to say, what about that move that he made on Quattararo into turn two? That was just sensational. Oh, and yeah. What, and what I loved about it is he gets to the group of riders. We saw this in the, the San Marino Grand Prix. And it's just, there's no faffing around. It is just go for the jugular. Oh, yeah. 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 But I mean, that's uh, that I think is also a, the nature of the, the the nature of the Suzuki. Because I mean, like one of the things I remember from last year uh, was um, uh, Alex Rins' move on Jack Miller. I mean, you know, he's just at Mugello. He's just riding around the outside of people. You can ride around the outside of people on that Suzuki. Um, and that is, you know, it's a sign that the bike is really, really good. I mean, we keep talking about, all right, what's the best bike on the gear, on the grid? I think that you can make a very, very strong, a strong case for the Suzuki being the best, uh, the, the best bike on the grid. But as I'm saying, it's all about a compromise and the compromise they've made means that they end up, 
having to start from sort of 11th. But then, uh, as Xuan Mir uh, so deftly displayed, uh, starting from 11th is not particularly that terrible. Alex Rins has said, you know, like, oh, it doesn't really matter if we have to start from 12th because we'll just overtake everybody. Like, you know, um, you know, these are the best people in the world, the best riders in the world you're having to overtake. It's, you know, oh, well, whatever. I'll, uh, I'll manage. So it's, uh, it's, it, it just, it's, it's fascinating. It, it makes the whole thing fascinating because if that bike was actually good at qualifying, I think, uh, it would, it would be a very different championship and they'd be making people look silly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He certainly made a few people look silly on Sunday. His teammate included Alex Rins was just absolutely nowhere all weekend and uh, quite perplexing. One of those things that you have to maybe draw your own conclusions and say, is his head gone a little bit, seeing Mir up there so strong? Yeah, I mean, yeah, possibly. Uh, I mean, he did have a crash on Friday, um, which he said didn't hurt him, but you, you have to wonder. Maybe it just knocked his confidence and again peter bob made a made a very interesting comment and you've i mean you've talked about this yourself sort of you know uh, just personally it's the same for the journalists and everyone else um you're stuck in this bubble and especially for riders riders are all hyperactive they always want to be doing things they always want to be sort of engaged in things and they're stuck in a bubble and there's no entertainment and there's nothing to do. And you have to wonder if these riders are, is it starting to get to these riders just being stuck sort of in the same place for two weeks, not allowed to go anywhere and not allowed to do anything, uh, except go out on track and sort of cycle around for a little bit. Um, you also have to wonder if that was and it had an effect for some of the Italian riders in that um, the locals uh, were able to I mean Valentino Rossi could drive home after Misano won uh, uh, you know he drove home the sort of 10 kilometres back to his house could sleep in his own bed and could get back into some sort of like normal normal rhythm um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in Barcelona where some of these riders come from the espargaros will be able to sort of you know in between or you know they'll be able to stay with their parents they will it will not feel like being inside this really really weird bubble that you're in where you're sort of isolated from the or insulated from from the outside world yeah absolutely absolutely um we shall move swiftly on, David, because time is off the essence. And uh, there was a rather interesting battle for the final podium place on uh, on Sunday. We had Fabio Quadraro crossing the line in third, uh, but um, but well, he was demoted to place because he had exceeded track limits five times. Uh, he was given a long lap penalty on the final lap and didn't see that on his dashboard until he had passed the long lap penalty lane. Yeah, but yes, yeah. Also, he hadn't seen the. Uh, he also hadn't seen the 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 warning, so he wasn't expecting a long lap a long lap penalty. Yes, exactly. Um, and Paul Espargaro, to his great credit, had uh, had ridden fantastically well uh, for much of the race in third. A massive improvement for for KTM, who were tenth. I think the best KTM was tenth in the the previous race at the same circuit, and KTM being such a a tight knit professional operation they just managed to get all of their bikes up forward after the the test on tuesday we saw brad binder crash out of third early on miguel Oliveira was a, a fine fifth 
Ikalek Wona was going to be sixth until he crashed out uh, towards the end of the race. Um, KTM had, had turned it around completely. But just before that, Quadraro, what a fantastic little tanty he threw straight after when he realized that he was being <laughs> taken off the podium. Um, what, what's, what's the situation? How can, how can something like this happen? How can, uh, how can he not receive the, 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 the message or the warning on his dashboard display? Well, there's lots of, there's lots of possible, uh, explanations the way that it works is that race direction um uh well the way that it works is under the track there are lots and lots of loops there are all of these timing loops now we i mean we know this because the track is divided up into sectors uh, but there are far more than just the sort of uh, the, the the five loops which are used for the sectors and for the top speed there's usually anywhere you know there can be 17 or 18 different of these different loops um now these loops as the bike goes past it registers with this loop and um a signal is sent back to race direction but uh, these loops are now what they call full duplex it means you they can both send and receive signals and so uh, the transponder um race direction if they need to contact a bike or all of the bikes uh, they can uh, send a message and the messages get sent via the loops to the transponder. And then from the transponder, it's sent um, onto the, sort of the CAN bus. And the CAN bus is the little communication network which connects all of the electronics passed together and which controls the bike, uh, uh, basically. So um, from there, it's passed from the transponder onto the CAN bus to the dashboard. There it's sort of processed and turned into uh, a readable uh, a readable message uh, and possibly a flashing light. Um, all of this is the bit from the transponder up to the dashboard is all configurable. So the the electronics engineer who sort of puts these systems together can make sure uh, that they can choose he, they, she, because there's a few um, uh, electronics uh, women in electronics engineers in my GP nowadays. So they can choose what to display. Uh, they can uh, choose a specific message. They can choose to flash a particular light. They can leave it on for a particular length of time. If it's a track limits warning, they might leave it on for, you know, 10 seconds or one sector or two sectors. Um, if it's a red flag, um, that goes out to everyone and the red flag message um, uh, appears uh, and stays on so that uh, riders know, okay, I have to stop. If it's a yellow flag, it needs to be on just for the sector in which the yellow flag is on. So all of this is configurable and it's easy to make a mistake and for it not to happen. However, of course, the most logical explanation is that the message came in, it appeared, but Fabio Quartararo was so concentrated on um, the, his battle with Paul Espargaro, who, as you say, he rode brilliantly. The way that he held off Quartararo, that he exploited the weakness of the Yamaha, slowed him up in the middle of the corner, and then used the the driver of the, of the KTM to, to get out of the corner, um, was superb. So it's quite possible that the message was sent, it was received, um and um it was displayed on Quartararo's dashboard but he didn't see it because he was too busy uh, trying to invent ways to get past um uh, uh to get past Paul Spargaro. now the message definitely got sent and it definitely got received because if it hadn't that would have been logged by Yamaha and Yamaha would have um uh, submitted a, a a protest a technical protest because they would have been able to prove look this message never arrived at the bike 
Um, so it definitely arrived at the bike. We know that. Um, the question is, um, it definitely got to the bike, but somehow it didn't get to Fabio Quartararo's brain. And somewhere in between the transponder and Fabio, Fabio Quartararo's brain is where it went wrong. Worth pointing out at this point that uh, Quartararo is absolutely adamant that he was looking at his dash or regularly looks at his dash three times a lap. Uh, and he saw nothing of the, nothing of the sort of uh, a dashboard message. Um, but just to clear something up as well, I saw quite a few people on Twitter after the race um, taking a screenshot of Quadraro exceeding the final uh, track limits uh, on the exit of turn 16, the final corner, and saying, oh, look at this, this is stupid, ruining racing, taking a podium off him for this. That was one of five instances when he exceeded track limits and uh, it's important to point out that it's not for one single individual event it is for five events so he had basically four chances after exceeding it once well yeah he, he overstepped the mark four other times after doing it once let's say so he basically messed up five times and race direction say okay after the third time we give you a warning and then the fifth time we give you the punishment which is along that penalty or uh time penalty as it as it turned out to be um, yeah, exactly. i mean you couldn't you, the, there is a debate to be had over uh exceeding track limits and all the rest of it and some of the some of the places where the lines are painted are a bit arbitrary and it's really difficult to say that you know all right they exceeded exceeded it here a little bit i mean turn 11 is a, is a, a turn 11 i think is a good point where because a lot of people run wide there just because you're going so fast um that's the sort of place where actually uh, that needs to be punished because you can gain speed. You can actually go faster through that corner if you um, if you allow yourself to run wide and then come back on. Um, there are uh, again exit at turn sixteen. If you run on a little bit further, the reason that you're running over that little bit of green, you're going sort of using all of the curb and then staying out too late, is because you know you're coming through the corner faster. So you, I mean, you have to draw the edge of the, uh, the, the edge of the track somewhere. And, um, every sort of infraction is going to, is going to look bad. But then I think, you know, I saw a few people on Twitter mention that, um, if this was the TT, that would be a wall and no one would be, no one would be talking about exceeding track limits because exceeding track limits would be a very bad thing to do. So yeah, I mean, Just you have to draw a line somewhere. Yeah, just like it used to be in Grand Prix racing. Yes, I mean yes. back in the day, it used to be a you know a tire wall there or a or a barrier. Yeah, um, or or, or, or a, you know or a proper cur- you know they're called curbs because they used to be the curbs of uh, of uh, pavements slash sidewalks, depending on which uh, uh, which linguistic region you happen to come from. Um, but yeah, you would be you'd be bumping up against you know a uh, a raised section or going through. Uh, going through a, a road drain or whatever, and and uh, that would be bad. That would uh, that would be really quite a bad scene. <laughs> King of the understatement as ever, Mister David Emmett. Now, uh, I think before we go on to the winners and losers of uh, of our weekend, we're going to have to mention two things. One of those is KTM. The other thing is Andrea Davizioso because he's leading the championship. But KTM, David, I mean, what was the what was the secret? Because it was such a stark improvement. Um, they really didn't uh, get on so well with Mizano 1 and uh, Paulus Bargo was a bit uh, at a bit of a loss to explain just what happened because they had tested so well there um, Pedroza had been at, at Mizano recently as well but you know as I mentioned before all four KTMs possibly could have finished inside the top 6 or top 7 had Binder and, and Lekuona not crashed 
Yeah, I mean, the, the test obviously, the, the test helped. It helped them sort of like sort out what they were, um, what their problems were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i not sure. I was, gonna, I was going to let you explain because I've forgotten what Paul said. <laughs> um, you know, Paul was being very cryptic, as uh, he sometimes is, and he said that there were one or two interesting little parts that uh, that they had tried at the test and which they had taken to their bike. And basically, I can just go off what they were complaining of at Mizano 1, and that was they were saying that there was so much so much grip on the track surface because Mizano was resurfaced back in March. And even in hot afternoon temperatures, the track surface was still offering up phenomenal phenomenal grip we saw in the afternoon sessions i think in all three classes on qualifying day at mizano one and mizano two smashing just absolutely smashing the lap records and uh, they were saying that there was so much grip that it was essentially uh, just turning their bike into a bit of a tiz they got the turning sorted on the bike at hereth because the grip levels were relatively low there in the afternoon but whenever there was such high grip whatever way the mechanics of the machine was working they just could not turn in a smooth manner and they were losing out a lot of time so clearly they'd, they'd find some some something to help with that and then Sparger also used the, the soft tyre of course yeah. on Sunday yeah 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 exactly I mean the, the advantage of the soft tyre ironically is that the grip could drop off um, and so if your problem is too much grip when you've got a tyre which has less grip as we see with the Suzuki, um, once the, the 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 after the first four, four, five, six laps, the really ferocious grip drops off, and you just get good grip, uh, uh, and that can make it easier. But I mean, what Espargaro was saying, it sounds like they found something in the suspension linkage, or maybe a suspension part, which just softened everything uh, up a little bit and made made the whole thing a little bit more compliant and. Uh, um, uh, and made them that little bit faster. So, yeah, I mean, it's the advantage for KTM of having had the the race, a bad race, and then a day of testing, and then you know some some something to uh, something to fix. They had a new chassis at the test, but uh, that that chassis didn't actually make it to the um, uh, didn't actually make it to the race. Uh, they didn't get enough of a clear advantage from it. There was some talk that they they had a new engine as well, but I don't think the looking at the engine sheets, I don't think they used a new engine there either. They were using uh, engines which they'd already used. So I think it was just a question of, of finding those one or two little bits which which actually make all the difference. And finally, we move on to uh, Desmond Dovi. Eighth place, I, I got the sense that he was almost slightly embarrassed that he's still leading the championship after a couple of pretty dreadful results. Exactly. In, in exactly. Every time you, are, you, you, every time you, you know, you ask him about leading the championship, he laughs. It's um, so I, I don't think he can believe it himself. And if you, you know, as you say, if you look at it, uh, normally after uh, what's this? They've uh, we've, we've, we've it's round eight, but we've had seven races, seven MotoGP races. Uh, Normally, the championship leader would have at least 100 points, um, uh, probably 110, something like that. Uh, but they're not. You know, they, the, 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 the David Chosa leading with 84 points, which is about sort of 40-odd less than he should have. 
in in any normal season. So it's just it's the championship of it really is is the season of, of consistency. And like having finishing eighth on a bad weekend um, is actually not terribly. It, it, it's not terrible because you can quite easily pick up a lot more points uh, next uh, uh, the, the next weekend. It's been so up and down. It's been absolutely. It's been absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. The only promise is to get even more insane as the uh, as the season goes on. Um, okay, so Dave, just before we dip into our, our winners and losers from the uh, Grand Prix de Emilia Romagna, we've got one or two listeners' questions that I'd like to address first, um, because some of these are, are very interesting, of course, and thank you very much, dear listeners, for, for sending them in. Uh, the first one from Alex McDonald at Anteater32. Hi, Alex, and thank you for getting in touch. He wants to know, David, who will be the team principal of Repsol Honda in 2021? That's easy. That's going to be Alberto Puig. Um, however, um, whether he'll be the team principal in 2022 uh, is uh, is another question. I think it's too late in the season to do anything about it. Um, I honestly don't think that Alberto Puig is the problem. Um, I think the problem is in Honda. I think it's it's further up the chain. You know, they are they have built a bike which is really really fast but really, really difficult to ride. And the only rider who's capable of riding it right now is um, Mark Marquez. Although, to be fair, Takanakagami and uh, and Alex Marquez both had pretty decent races, really. Um, they both they both rode well. And Alex Marquez in particular has been making slow, quiet progress towards the front. He's becoming, you know, a perfectly seasonable uh, serviceable MotoGP rider um i don't think he's shown that he's capable of winning a world championship i don't there were very many people who thought he was going to win a MotoGP championship but he's you know making exactly the sort of progress you expect especially on the most difficult bike on the grid so i think the problems are in honda i don't think it's um uh i don't think it's alberto Puge. i think the problem is somewhere in hrc and especially in their engineering department yeah, and when you consider that Pooch is a pretty abrasive presence when he's speaking to us lot, uh, from what I gather, um, his relationships with people in the race team that matter, think of Kuwata-san or Takei Yokoyama, and you know I don't think there's a I think there's I don't think there's a problem with with the relationships there uh, at any at any point. So uh, so I agree with you wholeheartedly there, David. Um, Speaking about Honda, some of the struggles that they're having, has Paul Aspargo made a mistake? Uh, that, that one is from... We'll, we'll, we'll know next uh, year. Um, <laughs> uh, I, honestly, I mean, if you'd have asked me this um, at uh, before Jerez, I would have, uh, or even at Jerez, I would have said, uh, yeah, probably. Um, but it's now clear that the KTM is a much, much better motorcycle than we realised. And it's manageable um uh, but it's clearly competitive so yes it's going to be interesting but then i mean the reason that polis bargaro hrc signed polis bargaro is because he has exactly the kind of style that that kind of he loves wrestling with the bike he loves to fight the bike and to force the bike to do what he wants and that's exactly what the reps or what, what the honda rc213v needs so um let us uh, let us see it's too early to say um what you can say is that i think um 
I don't think, I mean, racists never regret choices that they make because you can't regret them. Or, well, they only regret them sort of 20 years later. Um, what they can, what you can say is that I think he, even he is surprised but ju by just how good this KTM is. Yeah, absolutely. That last question was also from Alex McDonald. And finally, Dave, uh, before we move on, Pete Burkers at Pete Bastin asks, could we see a champion without a race win this year? Um, no, because I think the, I mean, if we look at the top of the championship, it is, um, uh, uh, it is, Dovizioso, uh, what is it? Let's see. Dovizioso, um, uh, Vinales and Quartararo are the top three. And then Juan Mir is fourth. I would be shocked if Juan Mir doesn't win a race. Um, Pekka Banyaya has been getting quicker and quicker as well. Uh, but he needs to stop falling off, obviously. Um, so yeah, I, I think. I mean, it is theoretically, yes, um, because it is so close. There are so few, uh, uh, I mean, you don't need a lot of points to actually win the championship this year, but I can't see, uh, the people who I think are going to win the championship not winning a race. Dovi's already won a race and Juan Mir is, I mean, I can't see him not, you know, finishing this season without uh, having won a race. But if there was somebody who was going to win the championship without winning a race, I think it's Juan Mir. Mm. I mean, what mm. do you think, Neil? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think um, you look at uh, you look at the championship standings. Miller is in sixth; he hasn't won a race. Nakagami seventh; he hasn't won a race. Can I really see Jack Miller attacking Nakagami win the championship this year? I mean, it's it's a long, long shot. Um, but Mir, I think, is um, is someone that you have to look at very seriously. And with some of the tracks that are coming up. Um, I think that Juan Mir could be a real force and I might even go as far as saying he will win this weekend in Barcelona. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, like, I think it's going to be, um, uh, I think either Juan Mir is going to win or a Ducati is going to win. Um, so it's going to be really, really interesting. Now, obviously, because I predicted it, that's pretty much the kiss of death. Um but yeah, I mean, you have to say those are the, 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 the those are the, the those are the two favourites. Yes, yes. And uh, speaking of favourites, let's move on to the end of this show and uh, finish up with uh, our winners and losers from uh, from last weekend, David. Uh, let's start with your loser. Um, my loser, um, I think my loser is going to be Valentino Rossi. Because he, he had a really, really good race at Misano one and he just didn't make a step forward in Misano two. Uh, obviously got, Ed crashed, couldn't finish. Um, but he was never really, never really looked competitive. He never really looked like he could make the step forward, whereas there were so many other riders who did make a step forward. Uh, in this race so I mean we keep I mean you can see that that Valentino Rossi is still competitive he's uh, on any given weekend you would expect he would be capable of getting a podium but um, he also occasionally or 
perhaps more often than in the past, has weekends like this where nothing is really happening and it's sort of you're just riding around in circles. Yeah, yeah. I think you look at Ross's heyday and he was producing performances of exceptional quality week in, week out. And the difference now is that you're seeing him produce occasional performances of exceptional quality. And I think that's applicable to the last three or four years. Um, yeah, it is a lot more up and down, but such is the nature of uh, of age and uh, and life. Yeah, I mean, the, the point is he is still capable of uh, uh, of podiums. He's easily capable of scoring podiums. You would have to think that he is still capable of winning a race from time to time if things fall uh, for you know fall out the right way for him. Um, I don't think he's going to win a championship. Um, I don't think he's ever given up on a champion. He's, he's going to give up on a championship, but, um, uh, yeah, he's still, he's still competitive. He deserves a bike just because he's still one of the fastest guys in the world. It's just that he's not, you know, that it, it, it's not 2003 anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to go with Alex Rins because it was a, it was a shocker of a weekend. It was a, a shocker of a race. It was a shocker of a qualifying performance. I mean, what is Alex Rins doing down in 18th? Uh, on the grid, 12th in the race, um, said he was having some braking difficulties, could never really get the bike stopped as he wanted. And, uh, I mean, he was just giving away, giving away serious amounts of points. And yeah, it's, it's got to that stage where he's basically being outridden by his teammate. And you, you have to wonder how that will affect Rins because he's not used to, to not being the top dog in that team. And, uh, the fact that, uh, he has another guy next to him that's not only beating him on track, but is also going for the championship. I mean, Rins, I think, surely must be thinking, had I not crashed the Hareth, you know, that could be me. I could be leading this championship. Um, and, uh, I mean, that must be a very bitter pill to swallow. Yeah, I, I also I also wonder how much, uh, you know, how much pain he's, he's having from his shoulder, how much of a problem his shoulder still is. Um, you know, we've seen it before where he says he's getting arm pump just from a lack of, um, uh, just from the pain in his shoulder, um, just from a lack of strength in his shoulder. Uh, and I think perhaps these back to backs, especially this week where you have uh, a race and then a test and then another race, um, on that there's no time to recover and there's no time to train there's no time to build any strength so it's just uh, I, I think it's going to be really really tough for him and he really paid the penalty but yeah he just seemed to be absent this weekend he did he did yeah he took a leave of absence absolutely and then that brings us to your winner um, my winner I think my winner has to be Joan Mir because, um, you know, he qualified 11th, but he finished second. Uh, he finished second also because Fabio Quartararo was stuck behind Polo Spargaro and Polo Spargaro was spending his time defending. Um, and that sort of slowed him down. Uh, it puts Mir right into the middle of the championship, uh, right into contention. Uh, and he is just looking so strong. Um, for me... Yeah, I I think this is this was this feels like the weekend where Juan Mir suddenly or really became the favorite for the championship. Little late. 
I felt that erisical, but uh, <laughs> but better late than never did. I'm I'm slow. You know that, Neil. I'm slow. <laughs> I'm going to uh, to shift away from the Model GP class. Look into Model Three. Uh, this might be a bit of an unpopular opinion, but Romano Fanati gets uh, gets the the nod for me because it was uh, two years ago that he walked away from this round with his career in tatters. Basically, no one wanted to touch him with a barge pole. Uh, he lost his ride for that year. He lost his ride for the following year. Um, his world was turned upside down, and deservedly so. It was a reckless, dumb, stupid move. Uh, but he had to deal with all sorts of shit. And from what I gather, he still has to deal with all sorts of, of vile and vitriol and, and hatred uh, on, on social media. I was speaking to someone at Dorna, and they were saying that the reaction to his win on Sunday was was quite obscene with uh, insults and, and things being directed at him it's been a it's been a shocking year for Fanati up until Mizano but in Mizano one he certainly did find something with uh, with the Husqvarna Max Racing Husqvarna team basically on the KTM um, and he rode brilliantly like we've seen so often in the last two years since he returned to Moto3 that he's, he's very regularly up there in the fight for the for the lead but the problem is there's 14 other guys there and uh, you just get the impression that he's not really I'm not sure if you could say he's not willing to risk it but it's it's very apparent that he doesn't feature towards the front of these big battles in, in much of the much of the Moto3 many of the Moto3 races that we see this was completely different he was riding right in the front and yes he was uh, slightly lucky slightly fortunate that uh, Vietti barged Masia wide at turn 14 on the final lap but Fanati was really well placed he was in line for a podium anyway and it was an opportune move but it was a it was a fine move nonetheless he showed that he was up for the scrap he was right there at the front and um, yeah I mean it's uh, I think it's quite a nice story Finale coming back to win in in Mizano and uh, and you know like speaking afterwards uh, look we know he's maybe not the smartest guy and that move two years ago showed that but there was no bitterness there was no sticking the middle finger up like yeah you know this one's for all my haters there was none of that it was just happy at being back after a good race and he was asked for his comment on how he's turned his career around and you know does he have a message for him? all this kind of stuff that comes with a, a kind of redemption tale and he was like ah, it's not, I don't want to talk about that you know it's just a, it's a great moment I had a good race and I'm, I like this winning feeling and with that win he becomes the most successful rider in Moto3 history in terms of race wins so how about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a good show. I do wonder, do you think that, um, as you were saying, like he can be, I mean, timid is the wrong word for anyone who's, you know, competitive in Moto3, but um, uh, in the uh, in the new Axe Murderer class, which is Moto3, do you think that he is a little bit more cautious precisely because they, he knows that everyone has his number? That um, if he does something, uh, if if he is involved in an incident with with another rider, then he will inevitably get the blame. Race direction will look at him that way. Yet his card is very much marked. Um, so, do you think that could be an issue for him for for why he's sometimes a little bit a little bit slower? Yeah, I think that's that's one of the options. I also think that. He doesn't really want to be in Moto3. He was quite happy leaving Moto3 and 
feels that his career shouldn't be there at the moment. He's one of the older guys in the class now. Um, and I think, yeah, he, from what I gather, he does struggle for, for motivation sometimes. And that doesn't really reflect well on him because this is, this is his final, his final chance, really, um, at being a, a successful Grand Prix rider. Um, but, um, but yeah, I get the impression that, uh, he, he's basically been done. He's, he's been, He's finished with, with Moto3 and, and wants to be elsewhere, but, uh, well, he has no one but himself to blame for, for that current predicament. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, he's done, he's, uh, he has a long list of crimes and, uh, that doesn't, uh, despite his talent, because he's, he is clearly, he's clearly a very talented rider. Um, he's just not on the, t- at the top of anyone's list because there are so many, um, uh, there are plenty of other ty- uh, riders who are also very talented and just don't have Fanati's baggage. So, um, and are much more of a sure thing. You know, you never quite know what can happen with uh, Fanati. And Fanati has managed to wreck his career a couple of times. So it's actually quite remarkable for him to even be winning races at all. So, um, uh, <laughs> bit of a strange thing but it'd be quite interesting to see him in world superbikes because i think he would be i think he'd fit in quite well he'd uh, cause lots of contra controversy he would um uh get involved in all sorts of scraps um and that's exactly what uh, world superbikes sort of needs you know it needs uh, uh I, I think it'd be good for the championship but um no idea whether he'll end up there because i'm not sure he's going to get to moto too um after previous experience without bringing money yes that would be a fair assumption i would say div absolutely um so that brings us to the end of this week's uh, paddock pass podcast we're only at the end of week two <laughs> i have to admit there was a point on sunday when i thought how the how the hell am i going to last until mid-november but uh, but last we will, David. Last we will, and we will we will strive to keep bringing you this podcast every single week, no matter how exhausting the schedule is. I'd like to thank you, Mr. David Emmett, for uh, for your musings on life, for your musings on MotoGP, and uh, where can we read your wonderful work? You can read my um, uh, my scribblings on the MotoMatters.com website, and uh, they. I'm proud to have mine. My work featured alongside yours, Neil Morrison, at, for example, On Track Off Road. Yes, exactly. On Track Off Road, great magazine uh, that you have to you have to keep your eye out for. Uh, free magazine as well. Um, also, keep your eye out for more editions of the Paddock Pass podcast, and you can do that by following us on the social media channels: facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. So, David, we actually had World Superbikes last weekend as well, and Steve and Gordo, you'll be delighted to hear, have recorded a show as well with some uh, extras that'll be on the Patreon page. So, uh, yeah, for as little as $3 a month, you really should consider uh, taking out a Patreon subscription for us. Uh, that is patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. Well, needless to say, we'll be back with you next week because we've got another full weekend of Grand Prix action coming to you from Barcelona. We'll be back this time next week. And until then, goodbye. Super. I think that was a good show.